Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. It has been quite a while since we checked in with Gary Gerstle to talk about the state of the Trump presidency and indeed American democracy. Quite a lot has happened since. We thought this would be a good week to get right back in. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary for the next few months with an unimprovable offer. Get a year's subscription and a limited edition LRB tote bag for just £40 by using the URL lrb.me forward slash birthday. Along with Gary, Helen Thompson is here. We're going to try and cover quite a lot, starting with the impeachment and working our way out from that back to, the, I think, the last thing we talked about, which was the state of the Democratic nomination race. But if we start with the impeachment and before we do the politics, I don't know if this is the law or the or something else, but some of the slightly more technical issues here, because I'm not 100% clear in my own mind what he's being I know I know what he's being impeached for but on what grounds because you do get two rival accounts on one account it's it's because he has done something illegal and the illegal thing is essentially breaching campaign finance law because he solicited a thing of value from the Ukrainian president on another account it's unconstitutional because he's done something that doesn't need a campaign finance law for people to know it's wrong, which is basically trading America's interests for his private political interests. And they're not exactly the same thing. And also, one of them refers back to a law that was passed in the 1970s, and the other goes back to the origins of the Republic. So I'm now looking at Gary. Which one is which one is he on the hook for most? I think he's on the hook for both. He will be accused of breaking a campaign finance law, which, as you suggested, prohibits the acceptance of anything of value. Anything of value does not have to be monetary. Well, it could be information. And it's true that the Mueller report has quite extensive discussions of this, too. That's what right. counts as a thing of value and information is a thing of value. That's right. And one of the contributions of the Mueller report is to establish what a thing of value is. And it's much broader than simply money. It can be information it can be other things of that sort. So that is the most immediate reason why impeachment is now going forward. There is the larger issue, which may become an issue in the impeachment proceedings of, is he acting in the best interests of the United States? And that is not a matter of breaking a law. But in order to impeach a president, you do not have to identify a law that he or she has broken. If he has been determined to be acting contrary to the fundamental interests of the United States. An impeachment inquiry can go forward on that basis as well. So I think we're going to see both tracks. But the trigger for this was him demanding of the Ukrainian president a promise to open an inquiry in return for both a visit to the White House, which would secure Ukraine's reputation vis-a-vis Russia, and in return for uh, military aid that had been promised Ukraine and that, it turns out, had been held up. We don't know yet exactly whether Trump ordered that it be held up until he got the investigation into the Biden family reopened. But that presumably will be something that comes out in the investigation. But do you think there's any danger in this twin track approach? You've got the narrower charge, which was the trigger for the impeachment, which is 
the criminality, breaking campaign finance law, relatively recent in historical terms, campaign finance law. And then you've got the wider charge. And when you look at what Democrats are saying, they do kind of lurch from one to the other quite a lot. He's basically betrayed his office and he's broken this really quite specific law. Don't they have to pick? I, I, I know it's not a formal trial and we'll get on to whether there's any prospect of successful conviction, but... Well, let me say there's all kinds of peril in this impeachment proceedings coming from every quarter. It's a very dicey process to run on any circumstance in any moment in American history. And when Congress is as broken an institution, which it is, it makes it doubly difficult. I think it's important that the Democrats keep focus on what happened in Ukraine. And there's got to be all kinds of efforts on Trump's part. We've seen more of this yesterday and today, to muddy the waters, to lose the focus on the specific act of what happened in Ukraine. Because that allows him to claim that this is just more of the Democratic witch hunt against him to delegitimate the results of the 2016 election, to mobilize his base. So he is going to be constantly trying to muddy the waters and get the Democrats off their focus. And if he succeeds in doing that, I think it will redound to his benefit. Yeah, I mean, I I think that the law issue is much better prospect for the Democrats. I mean, leaving aside the question of whether they can get anywhere in the Senate, which I take it that we're going to come to. I think the the difficulty with the he's hurt American interests line of argument is, is that all presidents do things that, in the view of their opponents, hurt the national interest, because what the national interest is, is always up for question. Now, you can quite rightly argue that in this case, well, it's not the national interest to be going to a foreign government and um, seeking help from it in order to hurt your opponent. But I think if it's thrown in those kind of general terms, it opens up the question of like, well, isn't there something that this is not exactly par for the course, but it opens questions about the way in which previous presidents have potentially behaved in relation to foreign governments and looking for information to help. Now, what it looks like here, though, is, is you can because of the transcript, actually, not really the whistleblower aspect of it, say, well, look, here is clearly the case that you can't dispute that Trump is asking for favours from a foreign government to hurt his political opponent at a time when an election is up and coming and that that opponent at that point looked like he was going to be his um, opponent. I think that the more specific the charge is, the less open to counter-attack that it is in terms of this is what presidents do. Because one way you could put it is that the, the narrow criminal charge, it doesn't really matter what Trump was offering. The crime is to accept. But when you look at this, the way people want to frame it is there was some kind of trade-off going on. So it's not just he betrayed the national interest, he kind of sold out the national interest in return for political advantage and political benefit. And you know, we keep saying he's the hyper-transactional president and you're up or you're down depending on what you give him in return. And so it's quite hard to keep those two things separate. But after all, accepting a thing of value is accepting a thing of value regardless of what you're offering in return. And yet, you know, what he was doing was what Trump does. He was trading, right? So that's, to me, where it gets a bit muddier because then the trading becomes people want to say it wasn't just that he was accepting this thing. And obviously the reason that's criminal is the assumption you would give something in return. It's that he was actually involved in this kind of trade-off between America's interests and his personal interests. And it's really hard to keep that out of it. So I think it just kind of seeps back into that. But then, like you say, all presidents do a bit of that, or most of them do. Well, that's why I think the Democrats, to be successful, are going to have to keep the f- 
their focus on this particular transaction. It's also this particular transaction that brought the more conservative Democrats on board with this. Nancy Pelosi had been resisting mounting enthusiasm for impeachment within the Democratic Party. She's been resisting for months. Uh, She didn't want to do it. And what forced her hand was the reaction of moderate Democrats, many of them elected in 2018 in Republican districts, who had not wanted to go the impeachment route because they thought it was going to damage them in their re-election bid in 2020. This caused them to convert. Many of them have had national security experience of one sort or another. So it's a it's a specific act. I think it also matters to them that the inspector, I don't know if the listeners know all these ins and outs of American politics. I have trouble keeping track of them myself, but there is an inspector general for the intelligence agency who is authorized to investigate complaints that whistleblowers bring to him or her. And this Michael Atkinson was a Trump appointee. And the fact that he is presumably then a Republican and acting in this way is part of what persuaded Democrats in Republican-leading districts to come aboard. And I'm not sure Nancy Pelosi herself wanted to commit to the impeachment route, but at this moment in time, through these acts and through the evidence that was being provided, caused those more conservative Democrats to go over to the other side and forced her hand. Do you think there's any danger that, because, as you say, the focus needs to be on the narrow thing, that the narrow thing doesn't resonate in the way that the wider thing does? So arguments about collusion and Russian interference and the ways in which American democracy might be corrupted, but simply a thing of value being offered and the thought that people might think that it's not, is it so different from kind of what goes on anyway? Because there's you know, the wider critique of Trump, which people understand, but have broadly rejected if they support him, which is that he's corrupt all the way down. Is there a danger that making it narrow enough to build the case doesn't resonate in the way that the wider case does. There's always a danger, and this process is full of contingencies. But I think if played right, this will be an advantage to the Democrats because they can hook this detail in this particular transaction into a very powerful story, which proved to be much harder with the Mueller report, which was literally too much, too much, and all over the place. A president who has been accused since his election of inviting foreign help and disregarding all procedures regarding elections literally days after he has been exonerated, supposedly exonerated from by his attorney general uh, in terms of crimes that the Mueller report could have alleged he was committing within days, maybe even within hours of learning that. He's on the phone. He's on the phone again, making additional deals, once again, inviting foreign help to undermine an election. And I think the story the Democrats have to bring out here is something they all believe in, but they need to articulate, which is that elections are the sacred events in American democracy. America has never missed an election. America has never been a country without an election, really, except for a few months between the time of the ratification of the Constitution and the first election to the the Congress. It is where democracy is performed. It is where the people exercise their sovereignty. And all the uh, energy and talents that goes into these dramas and these extraordinary public performances that happens in part because there are a lot of rewards at the end of the line, but it happens as well because these are enactments of what America thinks of itself as being a democracy. So with a president who has been more unabashed in in his behavior, this is not to minimize the extent of corruption in the American past with regard to politics, and we can talk about that some other time. 
But I don't think any president has been so unabashed in his contempt for the procedures of American democracy. So if the Democrats can hook this specific act into this broader story about what is it that makes America America or what is it that makes America a democracy, they could have a very powerful case. But they have to do it while always facing a counter puncher who's going to be constantly trying to muddy the waters. I think that the specific charge has to be the basis of actual impeachment because I think that the more general that you try to make it, the easier it is to, to defend. On the other hand, I think that Gary's right in that because it is quite not technical, that's the wrong word, but in some sense because it is um, specific, you need some story about why it morally matters because what you're effectively doing is saying that elections are not enough and this is where there is a kind of tension with it's the democratic moment because basically you're saying we are so appalled in moral terms by what this president is doing that we must remove him from office independently of an election. So you need a moral story about democracy tied to a specific act. I think the, the danger for the Democrats is that it isn't just what the effect on this on, on Joe Biden is, is that it does open up the whole question about what was going on in 2016 election and the fact that there are still ongoing investigations you know by the Trump administration about the counterintelligence operation against Trump by the FBI and the Justice Department during 2016 or not during the whole of the 2016 election but starting from the summer of of 2016 and they don't want to be in the position where they end up having some inconvenient shall we say stuff about possible questions being asked about Trump in Ukraine themselves, coming back to haunt them when they're trying to make an issue out of Trump's conversation with the Ukrainian president. So if you do have to link the narrow charge to a wider narrative of American history, and this is an affront to the sanctity of elections, so I'm going to be devil's advocate here and say, reminds me of another way of telling the story of American history, which is it's a history of paranoia and hypocrisy. Going back to the founding, there is that sense that you know, our elections are so special. And there has been you know, consistently right back to the origins, this fear of foreign interference. And this does resonate with that. It has a kind of late 18th century feel to it. And yet people who aren't Americans do often think, but you interfere with other people's elections all the damn time. And I'm guessing that's not going to resonate inside the United States, but that's how it looks a little bit from the outside. Yeah, I, I get it. Uh, and uh, to try and get a, a lighter read on the current political developments, I think, well, what if what's happening in the United States were happening in some other place and America sent one of its so-called venerated election commissions in and they immediately would declare what's going on in the United States to be the work of a banana republic and and call for the whole democratic system to be put into some kind of receivership. Yes, I get it, absolutely. That does not resonate at all, though, within the United States and, and the politics thereof, except in one way, which is, which is quite important. The kind of election system that America ended up with in terms of number of people being elected, how decentralized the election system is, how many organizations you need, uh, why you have to go to Iowa, why do you have to go to New Hampshire, why do you have to go to South Carolina, California, all these independent places, why do you have to have a nomination process occurring over uh, the space of a year. This is in some ways the story of the march of democracy, but none of it is anticipated in the Constitution, and the Constitution makes no provision for funding this extraordinarily expensive exercise in electioneering. And so because no provision is made, the political parties improvise, and they have to look for private sources of funding to make this system work. It's the only way to support it until the last 30 or 40 years. 
And that has led to extraordinary corruption of the political process in American history, of which Americans are fully aware. I would say it's precisely the determination to declare the sanctity of the elections and the people enacting their sovereignty that makes Americans hysterical about the possibility of corruption, because at some level they understand that the system depends on a certain degree of corruption in order to work. And the Bidens are engaged in another form of this corruption, I would say, perfectly legal in terms of American laws. So I think there is an awareness, and and I think what you get is a schizophrenic attitude in the United States between these are the moments when the people are sovereign, as opposed to the sentiment, oh my God, corrupt forces are getting hold of our democratic process. The republic is ruined. And you see that play itself out again and again across American history. Because you could say, to put it more simply what I was saying before, that this is a displacement activity. This paranoid, hypocritical obsession with foreign interference is a displacement activity because this thing is being interfered with from top to bottom anyway. Yes. So that from the outside, it's just that, that sanctity thing that if a foreigner does it, oh my God, you know, the, the republic is lost. But if we do it to ourselves... It's hard to... I think there's another, though, way of looking at the hypocrisy, which is that actually America also has a history of problems or issues, at least, with foreign interference via donations. I mean, if you go back to the mid-1990s, after the 1996 election, there's quite a fury about the possibility that basically Chinese individuals and Chinese companies have been making donations during the 96 presidential um, election. There's some talk at the time of appointing a special prosecutor to, to look into it. So it's not that there's just the question of the domestic corruption of the United States by campaign finance. It actually has a history also of the potential for abuse of foreign influence by making donations into that system. So if we compare this to other impeachments, of which there are really just two modern examples, Nixon and Clinton, it's a cliche, but the view always was what you're going to get them on is the cover-up. That's where the criminality comes and this one feels different. So I noticed Nancy Pelosi made a statement, so we're recording this on Wednesday, today, pushing back against Trump's statement in which she says, I'm not going to cooperate. And in her statement, she says, we're seeing the cover-up of democracy. That's what she calls it. She wants to get that word cover-up in. But it's an odd word with Trump. And I think we've talked about this a bit before. Like, he doesn't cover it up so much. There's a brazenness to it which was not the case with the other impeachments, where there, there was a thought that if these presidents were going to be got, it would be because they would be dancing around the fact that they couldn't admit what they'd done. And Trump is less abashed about admitting what he's done. And then he refuses to cooperate. Does it, that make this one different, that it's not primarily going to turn on the extent to which he was covering up? I don't think it will primarily turn on the cover-up. There is a cover-up part of the story, but it was something enacted by his aides not by Trump himself. As soon as the the conversation with the Ukrainians ended, apparently, of course, we're still waiting to hear more about this, but apparently there was great consternation among the various people listening into this Some were described as feeling physically sick. Physically sick, uh, that, oh my God, I can't believe what he's just done. And so efforts... Well, you have to wonder what they've been doing for the past couple of years, but still. Yeah. That's a subject for another show, I think, that we could talk about that as well. So there was a lot of scurrying and a decision, we don't know by who exactly was made, to put this conversation into the deepest lockbox that exists in the White House for protecting the most important conversations. 
And it's not at all the habit to put ordinary conversations with leaders of other countries into this lockbox, but a decision was made to put this in there immediately. This was not a decision taken by Trump. In fact, he may not have known about it until the story broke. That's, in fact, I suspect that to have been the case. And so while they can get some of his associates on the charge of cover-up, and I don't think they can get him on it. I think here it is the crime itself. In regard to Nixon in 1972, the authorization on the part of the Committee to Re-elect the President, known by the wonderful acronym CREEP, was given by his Attorney General Mitchell and not by Nixon himself. And I think it's fairly well established that Nixon did not know about that act. So his criminal act was covering up a criminal conspiracy and break-in when he should have reported it. I think the facts are now, in this case, different. It's partly a matter of Trump's brazenness, but it's also the, a matter that the facts in this case are different. One thing we can count on is that Trump will break every norm of politics in order to defend himself and to survive. And that is something that I think Nixon was not willing to do. He was willing to do things in private that he could get away with, but he was not the kind of public norm buster that Trump has shown himself to be. If we just make a comparison with the Clinton one, I'm not sure it really is the cover-up as such that does for Clinton. What does for Clinton is the lie to the grand jury. because it's well, already, It didn't do for him, but got him impeached. I meant the reason why the impeachment proceedings started against him, because it was the fact that he committed a crime, a really specific crime, that was the crux of the impeachment charges against okay, but him. A lie is a form of cover-up. But it's because he was lying to a grand jury, and that's against the law. Right. So, I mean, actually, Nixon had committed criminal offences because he, he might not have ordered the, the burglary at Watergate, but he had almost certainly ordered the, the burglary of the Daniel Ellsberg psychiatrist's office. So it wasn't that he wasn't without criminal behaviour too. I think the Nixon comparison is rich because of the contrasts. Uh, there are other contrasts to be drawn. First, the question of whether... The White House had to turn over critical recordings and information, went to the courts, and the Supreme Court ultimately ruled that he did have to do that. It's an interesting question about what's going to happen if this goes to the Supreme Court this time, where you've got clearly five Republicans and and four Democrats. It'll be John Roberts weighing his immediate future in American politics with his legacy over the long term, and we don't know which way he's going to go. And just remind us, the Nixon Supreme Court, how did it stack up? compared to now in terms of the Supreme Court wasn't quite as partisanly divided as it is now. Well, from the, cons the conservatives saw it that way because it was a liberal court. It was the Warren Court, and Nixon had begun to rebuild it in a conservative direction. But it still had its liberal character. And it still had its liberal majority. And its liberal majority. And, and that majority said hand over the tape. Yes. And now I think we need to say the Supreme Court has a conservative majority. So that matters a great deal. And also there was bipartisanship in the Nixon the threat of impeachment and removal by the Senate. Not an insignificant number of Republicans voted to open an impeachment inquiry into Nixon. And when it became clear that he was going to be impeached by the House, a group of Republican senators went to the White House, led by one Barry Goldwater, and tells Nixon the game is up. You resign or you'll be removed. And the volunteers to do that with Trump are currently quite thin on the ground. Yes, it's right now that is hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine Mitch McConnell going to the White House and saying, you resign or we will remove you. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So what do we think the conventional story about what's happening here is that the Democrats got to a point where even Nancy Pelosi didn't think she had much choice. And she could see the risk, but the advantages too. But the chances of a successful conviction that passes the Senate are next to zero. Right? Correct. Okay, but they're not zero. And in that space between next to zero and zero, what could happen? What are the things in the current situation that could break the hold that Trump has on Republican senators? Because it can't be that he can, in his words, walk down Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and they would turn a blind eye. So do you have a sense of what it is or what I, it could be? I think there are two elements to watch. One is support among Republicans for impeachment. I don't think this impeachment inquiry is going to make much of a dent in the core Republican base, but that is approximately 35% of voters. In order for Trump to win, he's got to peel off a significant other chunk of Republicans. These we can characterize as suburban Republicans, and they are not the rabid Trump supporters. They like a lot of what Trump is is doing in terms of tax cuts and deregulation and all that, but uh, they do have a regard for the Constitution and the rule of law that he himself, I would say, does not have, and there are aspects to the story that could push them into another camp. And the latest polls show modest rises in support among Republicans for impeachment. They are not dramatic, but these are polls to be watched. And I think how this plays over the next few weeks is crucial. And the Trump administration has just weighed in with a furious counterattack to solidify their base and scare off Republicans from making precisely this, this move by declaring we will not cooperate in any way with this witch hunt. So is that in a way the test? So Republican senators probably live with Trump losing those voters he might need to be re-elected, if it eats into the base, they fear for their own seats. And at the moment, those two things are different, right? Those two things and are indeed, different. And indeed, some of them may well hope that he's not going to win the presidency, right. but they want to keep their own seats. And so they can accept a certain amount of leakage of support. If I mean, would his approval rating need to drop down to kind of 35, 32 for them to start getting one? Well, I think among the senators, the senators are less vulnerable to the base than congressmen and women are because they represent a whole state and the districts can't be drawn as they are in Congress to, say, reward the Tea Party with its most favored candidates. So I think these poll numbers, as they exist now, even if they don't eat into the base, are figures that they are watching very closely. There is no love lost between Mitch McConnell and Trump. Uh, If we got Mitch McConnell in this room and we got him to talk honestly, he would probably say, I can't stand the guy and I'd like to see him go and have Pence put in his place. So if they see an opportunity where he is failing or eroding and he might not win the next election and Pence may be the way to secure the interests of the Republican Party, I think that's a moment when they could swing. But the numbers would have to be considerably higher than they are now. I think the crucial thing really isn't so much um, Trump's re-election himself. It's the Republicans who in the Senate who are up for re-election in 2020. 
And it's quite difficult to see how those senators are going to win without a significant part of the more loyal Trump supporters turning against him as well, because none of them, I think, have got, well, I'm not saying none of them, but few of them have got big enough margins that you could dispense with those voters. And I, I think that the the thing that's more likely to cause doubts for the Republican senators is actually the position that Trump's moved to on Syria. Because here we have Trump moving to saying again, I and mean, it's not like he hasn't tried this before, that the United States' involvement in Syria is over and that the, all the troops must come back. And that is a position that is not supported by a number of the Republican senators who have been very loyal to him, at least in their outward protestation. Starting with Lindsay Graham, I think, being the most significant of those. He's, he's been extremely critical of what Trump did at the weekend in terms of the Syria announcement. He was extremely critical last time Trump tried to move, which was December 2018, to withdrawal from Syria. That time that not just the Republicans in the Senate, but people in the White House were able to pull, or some of them anyway, were able to pull Trump back from that position. Now, if they're not able to pull Trump back into line this time, and this is actually a watershed moment in terms of the US's involvement in Syria, then I think that we are in a potentially different position for the Republicans in the Senate. I still would put in the caveat that these are senators, some of whom are facing re-election, and it isn't difficult for the Trump administration to present this move towards impeachment on behalf of the Democrats as something that's motivated by partisan considerations and not by concern about the Republic, not least because it is clearly the second attempt at impeaching Trump, not that the first one actually got into motion, but that there had been an expectation that that's where the Mueller report was going. So while we've been recording this, the news is saying that Turkish troops have moved into Syria, and this is not just in America's hands anymore. So Trump has given... He didn't just make an announcement about American policy. He gave a tacit permission to Erdogan, which he's then rode back on a bit, or made other threats, as the almighty, whatever he said in his tweet, in, in all my wisdom and magnitude. But it's not in his hands anymore. Like Helen says, he's made various attempts to extricate the United States from this region, and the Republican establishment has pulled him back. But the Republican establishment can't pull Erdogan back. So this could be different. I think that's right. I, I agree with Helen. I, I think a foreign policy crisis may be what dooms Trump. And we may have one coming in Syria now. The rebuke of Trump by Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell, immediate, uncompromising, was among the sharpest I have heard of Trump coming from anyone in the Senate in a long time. One of the questions for me is, at what point do Republicans stand for principle and perhaps nation and national interest separate from their loyalty to Trump. It's almost impossible to find that in domestic politics. I think the one place where they might might find that they have to break with him is on foreign policy. And you're right, David, Erdogan took, what, 48 hours from the permission to the execution of the invasion Trump has not thought this out carefully. He's, uh, most of his wise men are gone. The guardrails keeping him in line are, are gone. If you as president are dependent on a, the Senate to be your guardrails on national security matters, the country's already in a lot of trouble. 
So uh, Erdogan is, I think, one source of instability. And then we have to think about the broader ramifications of Ukraine, because ultimately it leads back to Russia. And if we ask who is this benefiting, the Ukraine crisis, I'm sure Putin is sitting back and smiling right now at the way in which the Americans are tearing themselves apart yet again, uh, taking their eyes off election security for 2020 to engage in this very destructive behavior, which will probably give Putin much more license in Eastern Europe. Uh, So I think there are large geopolitical ramifications. And the final country I'll mention as a threat to Trump is Iran. Since he's been elected, I've been asking who's going to call his bluff in foreign policy, uh, especially since he's turned out to be something of a dove, very reluctant to intervene. And Erdogan may just have done that. But uh, North Korea is not, somewhat surprisingly. But uh, Iran is a plotter. And if they can use Trump for their geopolitical advantage, they will. So I don't think we've heard the last from them either. Just to relate it to impeachment specifically, I mean, the other thing, of course, that could happen is were there to be a foreign policy crisis, people rally around the president. I mean, in a way, it becomes harder. So it might open up a gap between Trump and his colleagues and the Republican side, if that's what they are in the Senate. But for a foreign policy crisis to intersect with impeachment in a way that does for him, it's still quite hard to get the sequencing right, isn't it? If the Republic is close to being at war, then another survival instinct kicks in on the part of Republican senators, not to be seen to be tossing your president overboard. Yes. Well, I think the other issue is how is the domestic politics of the Syria question going to play itself out? It's not like having American troops in Syria is some great popular cause. I mean, it's quite possible that Trump, I mean, I haven't seen polling on this, but that Trump is going to be on the side of majority opinion when it comes to pulling out from the, the Middle East. I mean, the last two American presidents who've been elected have been trying to disengage the United States from the Middle East in one way or another, starting with Obama making the moves towards the United States withdrawal from Iraq and then Trump coming into office promising that he's going to withdraw from Syria. It's very easy for Trump to present this as, look, I'm sticking to the campaign promises. Now, I totally think that in terms of the Senate and important people in the Senate, this is a problem for him, but I don't think the domestic politics of it in terms of public opinion necessarily play against him. And Gary, you said you know, Ukraine is not just a placeholder here. It's a real issue in its own right. But so too is it an issue for Biden. This is not a consequence-free event for the person who will be nominated, or the process for discovering who's going to be nominated by the Democratic Party. How bad is this for Biden, do you think, that the fact that the focus is going to be on this? Because he was in trouble anyway. His campaign looked like it was sputtering. Do you think this actually finishes him off? I think it will finish him off, yes. Um, Regardless of the facts? Well, it's not just what's been revealed about Hunter Biden. He was not acting illegally, but he, like many other members of families in the political class, is taking advantage of privileges thrown their way. And this was one of the issues that Trump got elected on, drain the swamp. So Hunter Biden has done nothing illegal. He's been exonerated of the specific charges about misdealings in Ukraine. But it's clear that someone who's not really qualified to be in the positions he's in, either in Ukraine or in China, 
got there because people were hoping to get to his father. So I think Biden, who has not been a very strong candidate, is definitely going to be hurt by this. And I think the impeachment is going to accomplish, ironically, or maybe by Machiavellian design, one of Trump's primary goals, which is to delegitimate Biden as his political rival. He may have already accomplished that. Now, it's not just the revelations that have, have gone on, but it's got to be, you can be sure Trump has got to keep Biden in the public eye. He's got to tie Biden and his son to corruption incessantly. And I also have to say, I was quite disappointed in Biden's response to all this in, in the first week after it was revealed, which is basically to be quiet and not know what to do. You know, his family has suffered a great deal of terrible tragedy, loss of life multiple times, multiple children, and... It should have been something, how dare you try and foist another family tragedy onto me, something, something of that sort. He's, he seemed not equal to the moment, which has been my sense of him all along. He is the inheritor of the great warmth which still surrounds the most popular Democrat in America, a man by the name of Barack Obama. But at a certain point, he has to establish himself as independent of Obama, able to do it. And judging by his response to this crisis, I think that is a further indication that he is not going to survive this political run. And to be unprepared for this is really surprising, given it didn't come out of the blue. We were talking about it on this podcast. We did a podcast with Adam Tooze, and after we'd finished, Adam was quite saying, why did you spring that Hunter Biden story on me? This was about six months ago. And we said, because we think it matters. Now, Adam Tooze may not have seen it coming, but Joe Biden should have seen it coming. Well, he's been under attack by Giuliani about it for quite some time, quite probably, I should say, unfairly from Giuliani. This has been coming. I, I'm the New Yorker wrote a long yeah, piece on it. I'm not convinced by the idea that he, that Biden could have turned around and said, you know, get off my case because... I've suffered enough. I've suffered enough. And yeah, because regardless of the technical rights and wrongs of what Hunter Biden's position in these Ukrainian companies has been, as you said, he looks... He is part of a political scene in which influence is traded, in which people take positions or given positions because the people who are putting them in those positions expect some political reward of one kind or another to come. So I think that the Democrats in going down this road, the Democratic leadership, I mean by that particularly Pelosi, must understand that the collateral damage of it is the end of Joe Biden as the Democratic nominee. They need someone else to be the front runner for the nomination and they need someone else who's, who's going to, who will be able to stand up under scrutiny. So at the moment, the beneficiary is Elizabeth Warren. She was doing well anyway. I think, Gary, when we first talked about this, you were expressing some regret that her, I mean, this was maybe six, eight months ago, that her campaign hadn't gained traction. And you can't point to the moment where it gained traction. It's just steadily picked up speed to the point that she's now the very, very clear favourite. She's ahead of him in the polls now, never mind in the prediction markets. She's coming in the last week under the kind of scrutiny she hasn't come under before. There must be many Democrats who, if Biden is going down, are desperately looking for a non-left standard bearer Kamala Harris seems to have fallen away. Pete Buttigieg probably isn't right for Not quite it. Ready. The great beneficiary of this is Elizabeth Warren. Yes, yes. And uh, I think we now have to regard her as 
the heavy favorite to win the Democratic nomination. Which is an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. And it represents someone on the left of the Democratic Party in position to take the nomination, which by my count uh, may have happened only, well, if we count William Jennings Bryan's three runs for the presidency four times in the last hundred years. McGovern being the other. McGovern being the other, yes. We should mention that Bernie Sanders, I think, is now effectively out of it because of his heart attack. And there are already questions about his age. And I don't think he's... So what might have been a divided left vote is now going to reorganize all around Warren as a very sizable, mobilized, angry segment of the Democratic Party. And there is, as far as I can see, uh, no centrist candidate capable of picking up the Biden banner. And and unless someone gets into this race, which is already, you know, a, a late time to come in who is not yet announced, it's difficult to see how a person of the center is is going to stop Warren. I think the only thing I would say is, is there would be the possibility of Hillary Clinton. I would say there's been some noises about that in the last 10 days or, or so. Do you really think it's possible? I'm not sure. I'm just saying that there's noise out there about it. But what I was going to say, which does go back to Hillary Clinton earlier, more than 10 years ago now, if you go back to like October 2007, which is the equivalent of where we are now in the 2008 presidential cycle, Hillary Clinton was still way out ahead against Barack Obama. Not as much as she'd been sort of three or four months earlier than that in 2007. But I think if anybody had said in October 2007 that Obama was going to have the nomination sort of locked up via the superdelegates by late March, early April 2008, they would have been quite taken aback. So I don't think we should get too ahead of ourselves in thinking how this is going to turn out because no vote has actually been cast yet. But there is no obvious Obama in this field. And it was, even by that point, starting to shape up as a two-horse race, which this one isn't. The alternative needs to be clear, and the alternative to Warren is not clear. Well, it was, there was John Edwards in it at that point, remember, as well. And it took until actually the election starting until for his candidacy to, to fall away. So one last question. If it is Warren, it seems to me we're going to get another fascinating study in paranoia, hypocrisy, and the other ways of American democracy, because she poses potentially an existential threat to the Silicon Valley titans, just potentially. She has said she will break up Facebook. So there's already evidence that Zuckerberg has said one or two things about his disquiet at the thought of Elizabeth Warren becoming president of the United States, or maybe if she does become president, about making sure she can't do what she said she'll do. And those guys are sitting on a lot more money than any foreign agent involved in American politics. People have worried about how Facebook has facilitated the interference with elections. But Facebook may be about to do something much more overt. Oh, so you're suggesting they may author the intervention into the 2020 I just think if you're Facebook and you're sitting on piles of money and you don't have to do anything illegal, you must be facing the prospect of an Elizabeth Warren presidency with some alarm. Absolutely. And I, I believe now that the Silicon Valley titans are the biggest lobbyists in Washington, D.C. In other words, they are spending more money on politics than any other sector of industry or the economy. And so their interests are powerful and deep. And Warren is a very clear threat to them. And part of her success has been the clarity of her message, which is that the rich and the privileged have too much power in American society. And that is something that we have to change. Now, 
she might be able to hook into time-honored American traditions. One of the great American traditions of dissent, we haven't seen it much recently, is anti-monopoly. Uh, that the republic is destroyed when concentrations of economic power, however they're defined, get to be too great. And this is associated with uh, not just radicals, but great liberals, centrists of a sort like Louis Brandeis on the Supreme Court. And some of the people around her see themselves as neo-Brandeisians. There is a lot of support in American society for not necessarily breaking up the tech companies, but for reimposing a kind of regulation on the economy that has been missing from both Democrats and Republicans. So she has a lot of wind in her sails. On the other hand, it needs to be said, and I've said this before, but it, it bears saying again, that the Democratic Party has been most successful in winning elections and in governing when leftist candidates have drawn centrist candidates to the left. And they have generally failed when leftist candidates have been nominated. So that if Warren is nominated and she wins, she will have accomplished something that no other left candidate has accomplished through the Democratic Party in American history. Now, we already have the precedent of the unprecedented Donald Trump. So unprecedented things can happen. But we have to understand the magnitude of what this development would mean. And given those terms, you can believe that the opposition to Warren, she doesn't call herself a socialist, and she doesn't talk about revolution like Bernie does. But the kind of regulation she is talking about imposing on corporate America would have the same effect. And so you have to expect that the opposition to this within corporate America and all of its supporters is going to be fierce, and we have not seen it yet. Yeah, because the monopolists are not going to roll over. But that's I mean, why you might expect some other candidate to get in the race at some point. We're putting out another short film this week on YouTube as part of our series, and this one is relevant to what we've just been talking about. It's scripted by Martin Moore, a previous guest on this podcast, and it's about how Facebook does influence elections around the world. If you're in Cambridge and you'd like to come to an event next Tuesday, I'm going to be in conversation with Chris Clark, someone we've also had on this podcast a lot, the historian of Germany, among many other things. We're going to be speaking at the Union about my new book on political power and leadership, but also talking to Chris about some of his views about what's going on. You can get tickets for that if you go to Heifer's Eventbrite. You'll get a link to the event. We'd love to see you there. And we're also really looking forward to seeing you all at The Junction for our live event next week, which we will put out on this podcast a day later. We are celebrating 10 million downloads. See you there. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. So, Helen, you got to tell me about Hillary. I've, I've, met, I've missed this news. There is a little exchange between Trump and Hillary. Sound like fighting words. So do you have sources other than those two? No, no, there would be, <laughs> yeah. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. <laughs> <laughs> you will be right Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, 
you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.